Hello and welcome. It's Friday the 13th of March 2020, and we're back with episode 142. Before getting started, I think I'd be remiss in my civic duty not to make at least a brief comment about this unimaginable spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus. All I'm going to say, without getting into a huge monologue on this, is just remember, we all have a civic duty, a responsibility to indeed practice as much social isolation, social distancing as possible, which frankly, in plain English, just means stay home as much as you can. At this point, it's this is a thing which is growing with all the power and fury of Mother Nature, and yet it is propagating by something as simple as pure math. And it is indeed just a numbers game. And so to the extent that we can help flatten that growth curve, so to speak, well, the sooner we can get through this. So just a thought to leave you with, if you don't need to be out and about in public, I mean, if you really, truly don't need to be in public, then just stay home. It is your civic duty. All right. Well, before getting started, just a quick shout out to Harry Campbell. If that name sounds at all familiar, it's because you've already discovered his podcast, The Rideshare Guy Podcast. So Harry started this thing back in 2014, and he's since grown it to nearly 200 five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. He's talked with over 50,000 drivers in the past five years and really brings a unique lens to his analysis of this entire rideshare industry. In fact, he may be the only person to have ever driven for Uber and interviewed their CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi. So for me, I should say for us at Hogan Co., you know, our focus is, of course, all things AV and mobility. And obviously, well, ride sharing is a huge subset of mobility. And of course, well, the advent of autonomous vehicles is going to have a massive shift in the ride share industry generally. So really quite fascinated by what Harry's done here. So if you haven't yet checked it out, hit up your favorite podcast app, do a search for the ride share guy and subscribe. All right, then, as promised, we've got another great interview today, a wonderful guest, Oscar Slotosh. He's coming at us from Munich. I had the chance to meet with Oscar. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of a company called Validas AG. They are a tooling certification company. And yeah, if you're sort of drawing a blank, like I did, well, good, we're in the same boat because I didn't know very much about this at all. And when I had the pleasure to meet with Oscar in Munich back in October, well, I was sort of jet lagged, and so I kind of didn't process everything he was trying to explain to me about what they do, but I've got a much better idea of it now, thanks to this fantastic conversation. So I do hope you're sitting comfortably. 45 minutes with Oscar Slotosh, co-founder and co-CEO of Validas AG, begins now. Hey, real quick, if you're a company in the autonomous vehicle or mobility space, and if you're looking for an amazing new PR firm, then I'd like to introduce you to the good folks over at Scott Fosgard Communications. So you know how it is with most PR agencies, right? You spend a ton of money throwing it away every month. You kind of sit there with your fingers crossed, praying and wishing for something to happen, and then it usually doesn't. And even if it does happen, chances are, well, most agencies aren't singularly focused on the AV and mobility space. Well, that's what makes Scott and his team so genuinely, truly unique in the world. You see, Scott and his team have spent their entire careers developing the relationships needed to reach just that perfect target audience 
for those of you in the AV mobility space, they've they've worked directly for the likes of GM, for Ford, for Chrysler, for their suppliers. In fact, if you think back a few episodes, um, you might remember I had a guest on the show, Alex Thibault. He was from a company called Vulog. Well, Vulog is one of their clients. They've also worked with the likes of Fortelix, Delphi Technologies, LunaWave, May Mobility, Phantom Auto. I could keep going and going, but you get the idea. Anyway, look, definitely be sure to check them out over at scottfosgard.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-F-O-S-G-A-R-D. Or better yet, why don't you just shoot me a note? You can reach me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, by email, and I'm more than happy to do a personal introduction for you. I'm ready. Okay, then. In that case, we are live in three, two, one. Oscar, great of you to join me. Hey, Mark, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, Just for the record, I want to say once again, uh, thank you again so much for the fantastic tour you gave to my wife and to me when we were last in Munich back in October. Really, we had a wonderful time. So it's really my pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast and have a chat and learn everything about what you're up to at Validas. Yeah, so thank you. It was a pleasure to me. And uh, once you stay here again in Munich, I'm happy to uh, show you some other places of Munich you haven't seen so far. Well, thanks very much for that. We look forward to it. So, um, yeah, look, obviously, um, as you recall, perhaps I was quite jet lagged when we did meet. In fact, we had literally arrived that day. So if it's all right with you, I'd love to kind of start from the top, obviously, mostly for listeners benefits, uh, get a bit about your background and how you ended up here at Validas and um, kind of what you guys are up to. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm one of the founders of Validas AG, and um, we are specialized on tool qualification, and we are the only company worldwide doing tool qualification. And probably you don't even know what tool qualification is and what is related I to it. I was about to say that. Exactly. Yeah, I would love to get a kind of overview of exactly practically what that involves. Yes, yeah, so we are working very much with uh, car manufacturers, of course, BMW here in Munich, but also uh, all over the world um, uh, in Silicon Valley, in China, India, whatever, and all building um, autonomous and safe driving cars. And we help with that. And uh, well, if you want to build a safe system, you need to have safe software, safe hardware, and safe tools to, to develop all those things. And we are specialized on the development of safe tools. And we are helping our partners to use tools safely and to develop safe tools. And that's what is called tool qualification. So does this also involve setting standards or rather is it to ensure that whatever tools, and I'm guessing when you say tools, it might mean both hardware and software, I don't know, but is it, or is it more about ensuring that the tools that are used uh, satisfy some set of standards? Precisely. Yes, of course. It's uh, uh, we need to be compliant with safety standards in automotive industry. That's mostly ISO two six two, where um, you have to be compliant uh, with. That's like making a driver's license. So um, there are two things in safety in general. One is to have a safe system, and the other is to have a driver's license. And you can still argue whether it is related to each other or not. So you can have a driver's license, but not being a safe driver and maybe otherwise around, but somehow it helps to have a driver's license to become a self-driver. And the same is with these safety standards. You, um, the driver license is being compliant with these safety standards and building a safe system is, well, 
a bit of consequence out of it. Uh, but that's where we help our um, customers, we guide our customers to be compliant with safety standards, especially with tools and their libraries. I see. So, so just to be super clear, because you're right, this is sort of beyond the scope of what I'm familiar with. I mean, so the idea is that you are helping your clients. So whether it's any one of the big automotive OEMs or, or, or whomever it may be, you're helping to ensure that whatever tools they use at their factories are conforming. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So, um, and you might have heard from the safety level, uh, automotive safety level like ASIL. So ASIL D being the most highest level uh, to build a safe driving car and to have maybe fatal incidents if things not work, electronic braking system, autonomous driving, those are safety levels. And um, those are safety levels for the systems. So the system has an ACLD, then it's very critical. If it's ACA only, then it's not so critical. So that's what people do, and they analyze the risks which are from come from those systems. And it's just, a, let's say, the light is not so critical of a car like the brake. So these are different levels of safety that are required. So first, the safety is analyzed, the need is, the risk is analyzed, and then you can look into the safety standard and they tell you what to do. If you have ASIL A, you don't need to do so much as if you have ASIL B, C, or even D. And the same is for the tools. So the tools are also classified for the risks they impose to the safety of the system. And then if they are critical, those risks need to be reduced. And this is called tool qualification. Got it. And to what extent is this being modified as we enter the era of AVs? I mean, it looks like um, Vision ADAS systems generally are considered ASIL B. Um, is this broken down further into different types of vision components, whether LIDAR, sonar, computer vision cameras, or so on? Or is this all kind of grouped together? Well, it depends always on the purpose where you are uh, working on it. Usually, autonomous driving is considered to be ASIL D. But uh, what most people do, they rely on a safety concept. They make an ACLD system. And this can be done by combining two ACLB systems. So if you have a LiDAR and you have a radar uh, and you combine both of them, then both need only be ACLB. So that's a, a, a trick or a valid, uh, valid method to do safety decomposition, as it's called. So you can build your system in a redundant way and therefore the components are not as critical as they would be if it's a, a single source system. I see. Yeah, that, ma- that makes sense. Also, I suppose it would change based on the type of AV, right? So for instance, I would imagine that if you're talking about a, say, a level three vehicle with, say, just advanced ADAS, then I could see how, for instance, electric power steering might rank higher as ASIL D, rather the vision system would be ASIL B. But obviously, if we're talking about a level five vehicle, well, by definition, there's probably no steering wheel at all. But conversely, the vision system should be, therefore, ASIL D, correct? Yes, this all goes into the hazard and risk analysis, which, of course, um, they uh, identify uh, the, uh, well, for different factors, uh, the severity, what can happen, uh, the controllability, what you can control uh, if the things happen. So, and for example, if the brake doesn't go, it doesn't work anymore. So you can still have the manual brake or you can try to steer, but there's a less controllability. But if you don't have a steering wheel at all, then the controllability is zero and therefore the risks levels get higher. That's true. 
Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So to what extent does this tie in with the discussion on eventual mandated redundant systems? So as I think you and I probably discussed in Munich, um, you know, I, I always think there's a lot of analogies to to borrow from aviation where thanks to all the extreme degree of um you know, organizational mandates for aircraft systems to have double, triple, even quadruply redundant systems. I mean, I wonder the extent to which ASIL would sort of work with that, the ASIL uh, classification, right? So for instance, uh, presumably different levels would require different sorts of redundancy. So I'm just thinking out loud here. I would assume that an ASIL D system, so the most critical components, those would presumably require at least duplicate, if not triplicate systems, correct? Well, in general, it's it's done like this because um, for AZLD you have so high requirements that there are, uh, for example, with the uh, with the hardware tolerances and faults, uh, you uh, you can't even build such a good hardware. So therefore, uh, almost natural to decompose it into uh, to to uh, different uh, systems with level B. And of course, people want to be uh, very uh, safe with with their arguments, and then they they do it like this. But maybe we come more back to the tools. Yeah, yeah, On the tool level, you have very similar things. So you can also decompose uh, and build a system with two, let's say, similar tools. So, for example, if you run a test, that's very critical because of the testing tool would say, your test is passed, but it was an error in it and uh, an error in the system, then this might be critical. So one solution is to run the test with two similar testing tools from different providers, for example. Then that's just... Uh, a redundancy and if one tool would have an error which could be dangerous the other tool probably has not the same error and therefore you will get different results and you can say oh there's a high detection probability uh, for those tool errors and then both tools are uncritical but if you're just using one tool then it's critical so it's very similar to what you do on the system level happens also on the tool level and we do have a podcast on tool and library qualification where we discuss all those things in more detail. So it's about having a tool confidence level and what different tools we have analyzed and what different kind of errors we have seen. We have seen drivers going to hospital due to tool errors. So this really is something that comes more and more. The more people are using tools, the more uh, they need to rely on it. Wow, interesting. All right. So can you can you give an actual practical example of a particular sort of tool, a type of tool or a type of application where this has maybe presented itself? Yes, yeah, so the most famous tool is the compiler. The compiler translates the, the software that is written in a, well, I would say semi, uh, uh, semi language. So it's a programming language like a C language or or other language, C++ language, and the compiler translates this language into the machine codes that the machine can understand. And of right. course- Right, compilers I'm familiar with, yeah. So you're saying that the actual compiler is something you guys would test for qualification? Yes, exactly. So there are test suites that need to be run and we can help people to, to run those and also to discuss whether they are really testing everything they need. So a compiler is a, is a complex tool and this is, uh, um, yes, can be a critical tool, cannot be a critical tool, depends how you're using it. My other tools, for example, are code generators. So you might have more abstract graphical notations, models, and then you generate code, and then the generated code is compiled. So those are all different tools. Testing tools, I already mentioned. There are also um, tools which are called the coverage measurement tools. So 
if you test the system, then you have to test every single line of the code that every line is correct. So that's written in the safety standards. And there are tools that measure that every single line has really been exercised from the test case. Those are called coverage tools. And of course, they also need to be classified and they might end up being critical and require qualification. I see. And what about hardware tools? To what extent do you work with actual physical hardware tools? If any. Well, uh, that that is a, a interesting question. So the ISO 262, the main safety standard in automotive industry, says this has also been applied to hardware. But typically in the hardware domain, other people don't do it so frequently because they argue, well, if the hardware is broken, you will notice and the software will not run. So you have a high detection probability and therefore those tools are considered to be less critical. Hmm. Well, there is one exception because sometimes with the hardware tools, you can do a simulation and determine how safe is your hardware. So you can determine failure rates, uh, how uh, frequently your hardware might fail. And if those are computed wrongly, this is highly critical. And therefore, also some aspects of some hardware tools are qualified. So I'm familiar with the concept of, well, just generally speaking, of course, with mean time to failure of anything. Is this the same sort of idea? Yes, that is that is the same uh, sort of idea in, in hardware. So in tools, you, uh, you argue in different risk classes. In the tools, you have... Uh, potential error. So you think on what can go wrong with the tools and then you have those detection probabilities. What can we do to detect those errors and how likely will we detect them? And there are only three simple classes. Either we have a high probability to detect it or a medium or a low one. And if we have a high probability to detect the errors, we don't need to qualify the tools. And if we have a medium or low one, we need to qualify them. And of course, I, as a, a, a we as a Validas company, we can help people to avoid tool qualification. I sometimes say I'm an expert in tool qualification and avoidance of tool qualification because many people think, well, it's better to avoid it. But uh, on the other hand side, you can save a lot of money uh, by using tool qualification to reduce the process costs, to improve development speed. All can be done by tool qualification. So I do have a podcast episode, How to Save Money with Tool Qualification, which goes into more detail and technical details, as we might you, do it today, probably. I see. You mean your point being that you effectively offload this particular challenge from other companies so they don't have to do it themselves? Yes, that's also a very uh, good uh, a very good thing for our business because most country, uh, companies develop uh, their own systems and uh, they care so much about the safety and the software and they're so happy that we take care of the tools that they said, okay, here, you can have it. Please make it safe and uh, give us, a, let's say at the end, a certificate or a credibility or a qualification report, whatever they want, and they can get it from us to feel safe. That makes sense. But then how do you, how does Validus effectively, uh, how do I even ask this question? I mean, what's the overarching standard here? I mean, how does Validas effectively qualify itself insofar as, you know, you give this certificate, so to speak, uh, to a company which has used you for qualification? Who's qualified you? <laughs> I don't mean that as a, as a, as a critique, well, but rather, like, what's the hierarchy of, of certifications here? Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. 
That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, we do not certify. If a customer wants to get a certificate, this is like an official document from a certification authority. Uh, then we cooperate with TÜV or with other authorities, ah, and then we I can see. get a certificate. And yeah. nevertheless, we do also follow a process uh, that we apply. So we first analyze the risks and we build a model. The modeling is very important for us because this is very helpful to generate documents, to do analysis things. And well, we are computer science. We work with models. And this process has been documented also with models. And uh, the TÜV has given us a certification that our process is to comply with the safety standards. So if we follow the process, we are compliant with the safety standard. And at the end, we guarantee to the users or to our customers that they will be compliant to the safety standard. And if they want more, they can just go to TÜV and get a certificate. So we guarantee once they've worked with Validas, they will get a certificate if desired from TÜV or any other authorities. And by the way, we should probably insert a little footnote for listeners, especially in the United States. The TÜV is, that's T-U-F, right? That's sort of the yes. governmental body that governs, well, all things about automotive safety. Would you say it's similar to maybe NHTSA in the U.S. or DOT generally? Yeah, so they have a very long tradition. This means Technical Überwachungsverein. So it was founded more than 100 years ago to the steam engines because they tend to oh, explode. Wow. And then they were founded <laughs> to uh, over uh, to control those steaming engines, and that's where they have been founded. But they are well f- quite famous all over the world because it's German and it's bureaucracy and you know quality and whatever. So they are quite uh, <laughs> rigorous processes, and there are also some certification authorities that they are uh, uh, overlooking or uh, controlling them. So that's a really a hierarchy of bureaucracy. Right. No, got it. Okay. Um, and then I, I know that you guys work with AutoZar. So to what extent, what's the interplay as between what you do with tool qualification, which I've learned better now is largely in the software domain, but then AutoZar is also about standardizing software frameworks effectively when it comes to, well, everything automotive and indeed for mobility and of course, autonomous vehicles. So what's the interplay between what you do and AutoZar? Well, Autosar is an operating system standard, uh, which is, uh, of course, used in automotive industry. And there are hundreds of people writing thousands of pages how to standardize, standardize this. And, of course, this is only a paperwork, the Autosar standard. But many people create tools and libraries to implement the standard, to make an, build an operating system, and uh, mostly also to configure this operating system because there are worldwide people working together and everyone builds a system, a system a bit different. So they have a lot of parameters. So some people say even configuration hell to Autosar because you have so many configuration parameters and you need to be a real expert to be able to configure Autosar in a way that it's working for you. And this is, of course, a big basis for tools. So you have configuration tools, you have code generating tools, you have testing tools that test Autosar interfaces. And of course, you have also libraries that implement the drivers and parts of their operating system and those things. And all those things need to be qualified. And that's where we are working with our customers. We have already qualified many Autosar tools. I see, yeah. And just looking at some of Autosar's partners, 
everybody's really in there, right? So BMW, Ford, GM, Toyota, PSA, Continental, Daimler, Bosch. So you affect Valeras, yes. Valeras is also a partner. We are a development partner, so not a premium partner, not a main partner, but just a development partner, meaning that we contribute to Autosar, we create some specifications, and of course we have all the knowledge of Autosar and the access to the sources. Yeah, I see you there on on their website. Very cool. Um, Okay. So, so, okay, so let's zoom out for a bit. I would be remiss not to kind of take the conversation higher level to AV generally. I know, um, you know, this has been a particularly unique discussion insofar as the really micro level of really all the software development side and the production side. So zooming out, what what is, I'd love to just kind of hear your views on AV generally, where things are headed, uh, the big challenges that you see from your point of view from within Validas or any other view besides, if you like. Um, where, where are things going? Are we kind of on track? Or are you a bit disappointed with the pace of progress? Uh, what do you think? Well, it's our passion to improve safety and it's our vision to make the world a safer place to stay. So we are happy to contribute this. Well, but your question was, where are we on track? And um, I think we make uh, good steps in the in the right direction. So, um, but it's, it's really quite slow. Um, and even if there are systems, they are not safe. And uh, this is really a, a hard thing to make it really so safe that you can really trust it. And uh, personally, I do have a, a self-driving or quite self-driving with lane assist and, and a, a speed control adaptive. And that's quite working well, or at least uh, if the street and everything is, is okay, then it's working. But all these corner cases, all these uh, angles and and, and uh, not even the traffic signals are currently recognized correctly. And uh, well, that's a, a lot of things to do. And I'm not so optimistic that this will be will be a fast, uh, um, a quick win. So, but I think we're making progress. And uh, I have been last week in in Vienna and speaking to Professor Radu Grosso, and he's uh, working on the uh, field of artificial intelligence. And there are really some big, big progresses. So, uh, they uh, really speed up neural networks, and well. They are also working to make this safe, and that's where we can cooperate to make uh, a safe uh, um, a artificial intelligence working in the cars. We have a lot of tools and uh, many libraries to make this all safe. And I think that's still a very interesting and fascinating work way to go. Well, since you went in that direction, um, I need to ask a question about a topic which I have learned people are very quick to jump on and say, oh, now it's turning into a big ad spot for, well, this company. Uh, I mean, just very briefly then, your thoughts on on what Tesla are doing? Because obviously, anytime there's a discussion about this sort of technology broadly or even more narrowly, um, obviously, this raises a lot of, uh, shall we say, heated debate. Um, in a few, I don't know, sentences, do you have any particular thoughts you'd like to share on kind of their approach and what's going on? Well, I don't know uh, whether they qualify the tools at all. I don't know whether they, um, how they uh, treat the safety cases if they are compliant to ISO 262. So I would be very interesting and I would also love to help them in case there is need. But uh, from the overall perspective, I think they are doing great. So they are uh, making uh, big progress and they, as far, I have never driven this autopilot, but uh, I, I think it's, it should be interesting to to do so and um well in germany they they are a little bit more conservative so they don't call their uh 
driver assistance systems autopilot, even if they're doing very similar things. So that's a bit uh, comparing like uh, um, different things. But I wish to uh, improve both of things. One is the like the, the American way to push things, and and that's also good for the Germans that they see the Tesla is pushing and pushing, and now they also need to come up with a, a similar solution. So I think that's a interesting way, and I'm happy yeah, actually, that these I had, are bought. Yeah, I had actually read that in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Tesla's autopilot system has been effectively scaled back. It's not able to function at sort of the full capacity that we have here in the States. Uh, to your point, maybe uh, an, an example of sort of conservative you know, safety, mm. shall we say, but, but it, it, so let's forget about Tesla for a moment. I mean, with respect to all the various technologies being, being pursued by, let's face it, everybody in the world <laughs> at this point. Um, yes, yes, yes. I mean, of course, there's always going to be this concern, this issue of corner cases, right? But certainly there is some crossover points where some, some technology, even with its failed corner cases is still objectively demonstrably better than your average human. And I say average human singular, obviously I mean this in the aggregate. So I wonder, and my question for you is, isn't it a bit dangerous to always worry about, are we satisfying all the corner cases sufficiently? Is that not potentially detrimental? Shouldn't we in fact do a bit of the opposite? Let's try to get, you know, 95% of it working pretty well. And okay, if 5% are corner cases that don't succeed, that, you know, we fail those, isn't that okay? Isn't that better than the alternative? Difficult question. So uh, I, I think uh, in total, it's it's, a, it's good if we have an average which is driving better than humans. That that is something really we should aim for, and we will, we should be happy to reduce the number of people dying on the streets. Nevertheless, if you are in a car and you see something going wrong and you cannot interact or you cannot change it, so this would be. I think this would be more scary and more uh, tragically than an ordinary uh, incident on the street. So there is some more uh, visibility if something like Uber happens. So this was really scaring and bad thing in 2018. But uh, so many people died and nobody is talking. And, and just this one, you see, uh, and that's why they should be much safer and uh, also uh, developed in a good form, I think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, what you said kind of reminds me of something I used to ask others, which was a, to, to imagine a hypothetical. And this kind of goes, by the way, to the consumer acceptance question. I want to uh, remind you to, to check out if you would, please. Um, but the hypothetical I used to ask people was, um, you know, what would, not not even necessarily on the basis, basis of logic, but rather on an emotional basis, what do you think would upset you more? Uh, to be piloting an airplane and to crash because you made an error or to be piloting an airplane and it crashed because it did a full auto land and rather than auto land, it auto crashed. Or maybe it's not you who's flying. Maybe it's somebody else. You know, what, what is the more, uh, what, you know, what would produce the greatest anger in people, you know, when a computer fails or a human fails? I definitely think if a computer fails, that's more angry because human tend to fail and it's acceptable that they fail. But if a computer fails, then something that is repeatable failing. You have seen with the Boeing incidents, it wasn't one airplane crashing, it were two. And this is really something where 
Uh, and there also safety comes in place and say, okay, we have to learn from our bugs and we have to we have to reduce them and we shouldn't repeat them though. That's part of the system of safety uh, to reduce those uh, known bugs. Uh, and I think, uh, well, if I would die in a self-driving car, then I would want that people and the world learns from it. So I think that's uh, at least what should happen if if something like this happens. Yeah, but if that almost I kind of gives rise. If I would die in a, if I would die in an ordinary car incident, nobody would care. But if I would die in a system, then at least the world could be improved. <laughs> sure, but doesn't that sort of give rise to the impossible paradox that we therefore require perfection from an autonomous car? Which, yeah, it, well, it, it kind of presupposes a perfect future, which is not going to happen no, either, right? No, no, that's that's. I think it's it's. Uh, by the way, a very interesting question also from the safety standards. So it's ISO two six two that requires, as you would say, perfection. But they have uh, realized that they cannot make a self driving car perfect. And therefore, they have created the SOTIF standard, which means uh, safety of intended functionality. And this is something where you can say, okay, we make the parts that we know safe, and the unknowns, we should build up something like a learning system. And if you have a, a, a virus scanner on your system, it's also learning and learning. And if there's a new virus in the computers, then your, your, your scanner is learning. And similar things I expect with uh, uh, self-driving cars. So they will not be perfect, but they at least should be learning. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's, yes, I would agree with that. And I think that is one of the presumptions though, right? That indeed they will continue to learn. I mean, I think that is kind of the overarching idea, right? I mean, you've got yes. an autonomous vehicle, which has effectively some sort of AI capability where, you know, and so I guess that's the idea. It's going to be learning. Uh and, and then it's easier to accept for humans because uh, um, if you die to a human error, then we'll say, okay, well, that's really bad. But uh, if it's an airplane, then nobody can learn from it because the human is dead and all others are dead. But if it's in a, in, a, in, a, in a computer, then you can train the computer or improve the computer in a way that it will learn from it. And then I think it's better acceptable if people say, okay, at least this will never happen again. And that's, I think, creating a feeling of safety because if you enter an airplane that has crashed due to whatever, uh, and then you know, well, this has been removed and you will never crash against with the same, uh, re to, to the same reason, then you feel even more safe. Actually, it's worth mentioning that what you just said raises a really good point. Let's not forget that Obviously, the reason why aviation is so safe is precisely because things were fixed after they killed people. I mean, that sounds like a really horrible way to put it, but indeed, all the safety improvements to aircraft is precisely due to the fact that things which failed and killed people caused mm -hmm. improvements in safety. That's just the way it goes. Yes, right? uh, that's, mean, that's true. And that's also uh, coming back to software and tools. A very important part of making tools safe is a tool known bugs. So every tool has bugs and they're most 
tools have known bug trackers where you can enter known bugs and where they are collected and then um, you can learn from them and you can even use a buggy tool. You just have to know the known bugs and how to work around with them. Now that's an interesting thing and we come back to the tools where we have started. And can any of this data be accumulated? Actually, I should preface by saying I don't even know if this is a valid question, So, um, but I'll try to ask it. Can any of this data be accumulated um, after the fact, once the vehicles are on the road? So I'm thinking, for instance, suppose there's an error with some of the ADAS systems or maybe a brake system or suspension or whatever. Um, is there a future where this data can be collected uh on mass from all the vehicles, sort of crowdsourcing vehicle data to discover something after it's already been put into the real world. Yes, of course, this can be and this will be done. So, okay. for example, if you take the compiler and you compile a, a program and maybe you know there are three bugs in the compiler, but you can check for them, then you compile the car and release it to the street. Then maybe other people use the same compiler to develop a smartphone and they might discover a fourth bug, which is critical and then there is a workaround for it. And then you can even check whether this bug impacts the software in the car. And if so, you can just uh, do an update on the software. So the tools are not in the car, they are outside of the car. So they are easier to manage and uh, better to control. And of course, if during lifetime of the car and the software in the car, errors are known, then they can be, uh, then they can be reported, documented. And uh, well, in case it requires changes, the software will be changed. I see. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed that we're coming up on 30 minutes. Do you have a few minutes left? Say five minutes or so? Yeah, so that's, that's okay. So I, I like the discussion. Okay. So. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, me too. This is great. I have to say this is definitely one of the more, shall we say, technical heavy discussions for me. As you know, it's a, it's a space that I'm not familiar with. So I'm really enjoying this. Uh, I try to make it uh, uh, as, as transparent as I can. Yeah, this, is, <laughs> this is great. Standpoint, which was my background, as you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay, so the reason I asked that particular question, and by the way, don't let me forget to come back to this customer, uh, the consumer acceptance question, because I want to tie this all together. Um, the reason I was asking the previous question about sort of aggregating data um, from other sources, uh, as I think we may have discussed briefly when we saw each other, so I had learned quite a bit um, about here technologies um, the Daimler-owned or majority Daimler-owned company. Um, and one of the things that they do, of course, for their HD mapping is to effectively crowdsource not just visual data from cameras and other sorts of uh, vision perception, but rather actual vehicular hardware data. So for example, if windshield wipers are activated, then there must be rain. If the suspension shows a sudden, I don't know, step function or similar, then maybe there's a maybe there's a hole in the road and that kind of thing. Um, that to me seems like a pretty cool set of data from which a lot can be extrapolated. And I wonder the extent to which the kind of work that Validus does, whether that be sort of uh, compatible with that sort of data from somebody like a here technologies, for instance. Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, I, I think it's also important to have these data, um, which is outside of the car. So currently most cars have their own local data and um, this is, uh, let's say, not so much data and you can make it safe. And uh, um, that's something that people do since many years. But with autonomous driving, you have more the connection, either using 5G or the data collections you, you mentioned with other experience data and traffic data and whatever data you get into the system, not only the car, but also the servers 
that working with uh, tr having all these data, managing the data, the algorithms on this, those things, so the system gets much bigger than only the car. And of course, uh, all the tools that are used to build the system and uh, that are operating the system, they get an ASIL because they can impact the safety of the driver. And then, of course, if there's something got an ASIL, then you have to classify and eventually qualify the tools. So our field as Validas is growing and growing with those more complex systems. And got in it. Fact, for example, there are uh, Huawei is interested currently in our work. So they don't build cars, but they build infrastructure. And this will be in the cars of the future. Um, you briefly mentioned uh, 5G. I, I want to ask you two potentially related questions very briefly anyway. What are your thoughts? There seems to be a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, frankly, on the necessary or not question of 5G um, in general, but also as it pertains to vehicle connectivity generally. And then also I kind of want to touch on your thoughts on over-the-air updates, especially the issue of whether they should eventually be mandated. Yes, I think over-the-air updates is something that is... Uh, um... Well, it, it pays off for the for the uh, OEMs because if you have a, to to correct the software, and this will happen more and more, if you know have a new known bug or you have a new uh, other scenario or whatever, need to update something, then you need to update these things, and you can either recall the cars and uh, bring them home to BMW or home to the OEM to update the software, which costs a lot of money, or you can do over-the-air updates. So they're saving a lot of money by doing so. I don't think think they need really a, a, a law for that. The other point, 5G. I think, so my opinion is we will have a, a level four cars driving with 5G in a reasonable uh, time frame. So you will have separate lanes and you can control on those separate lines using 5G with some millimeters of tolerance. You can really have those self cars self-driving on those separate lines. And the only thing they need to react is something like uh, dogs or humans or bicycles or that they see obstacles. And then that is something which I think from the complexity is it's it's much uh, lower complexity and easier to achieve uh, than the full level five driving with everything. So I believe really that uh, for level four, 5G will be something we will see in some years. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But at a practical level, um, I'm just a little confused. I mean, 5G, sure. I mean, my understanding is that the biggest benefit to 5G is it's super low latency, which admittedly for something, anything involving, well, cars moving down a road, presumably that is a rather important thing. On the other hand, isn't 5G much more susceptible to interference, especially over, I guess, longer distances, right? Um, and so isn't there the concern that well, it's taken so long to build out a decent 4G network. How on earth are we supposed to build so many necessary um, 5G uh, uh, base stations or towers, whatever, 
in a reasonable amount of time? Or is the idea, in fact, that they would be very limited, localized build out, as you suggest, only where those particular necessity points are? So on certain roads and lanes and that kind of thing. Yeah, so for example, you can uh, you could do it on the airplane and uh, the airport. On the airport, you could make uh, uh, some dedicated uh, 5G networks there and then uh, have those buses drive autonomously. Or you could do it on certain uh, uh, roads in, in Munich. So we have a, a big road around Munich within, uh, and this could be something where you could uh, first pilot those things. So this will not work for... Um, all the uh, all over Germany in the next years, but for those dedicated roads where it's maybe interesting to have a, a line there or to experiment this. And uh, by the way, I would love to bring those technologies more into Munich and to to move this more ahead. And to be, I would be proud if something like this would work in Munich. And I'm I I'm hoping because we have now the EIA uh, moving from. Uh, Frankfurt to Munich um, the next years and they in Munich they promised well we will make here a, a, a real modern infrastructure for autonomous cars and whatever so they had make big promises and I'm hoping to see something from them because currently I don't see really progress in this here in, in the Munich area right now but maybe this is up to come. Uh, well, I mean, it sounds like there's some progress being made. At least most people in Germany aren't concerned that 5G is going to cause you to grow a third or fourth eye or seven <laughs> additional fingers. Here, I feel yeah. like there's a tremendous <laughs> amount of really tragic misinformation, which is <laughs> uh, <Okay>. pretty disappointing, <laughs> honestly. So that's good to hear. Um, all right. So look, real quick, as, as promised, I wanted to remind you, I don't know if I told this to you, but um, we, we, we recently rolled out the largest survey on consumer acceptance of autonomous vehicles. Um, besides the fact that on a personal note, I would love for you to check it out. It is pretty lengthy. It takes about 10 minutes to fill out. But for us, the big question, and I think this is kind of a big question I want to sort of leave you with, is what do you think it, are you concerned at all about the issue of consumer acceptance? Because again, depending on whom you ask, and I say whom you ask, this depends on so many factors, age, uh, demographic and, you know, specific data, you know, where you live, how you live, economic status and so on. People are, are going to be very torn on this, on the very idea of autonomous cars, right? Even level four, let alone level five. Um, By the way, I did this before, in? I did the, the, the survey before uh, uh, the recording of the podcast and I, I love the question and uh, the oh, ones, you already, yeah. you already did the survey? <laughs> Yes, I did the survey. Yes, before oh, thanks. that would be interesting to see, and uh, well, also to have a better discussion with you. And, and one question I like very much: What would you prefer, a self-driving car or an airplane, if it takes the same time? I was um, yeah. Then I asked my wife, "What would you do?" And she said, "Well, neither nor." So can I just skip this question? So oh, really no. good questions. <laughs> well, yeah. I would say both, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the premise is that, you know, hopefully the, the car obviously should be faster to a certain point. Obviously, you don't have to go to the airport. But yes. yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's a lot of At things to consider. I, I think the I think I've chosen the airplane because uh, somehow uh, I think, well, well, that's a well-established system and we can trust most of the pilots and so on. And then uh, I, I would feel uh, safer in the airplane. Yeah, that's that's valid. Uh, and by the way, speaking of which, I'm sure that you've heard, um, you know, we could effectively have one pilot cabin crew, or I should say one 
sorry, we could have one pilot flight crews today. The main reason we still have two pilots is really for public perception. And that said, <laughs> zero pilot flight crews are probably just five or 10 years away technologically, actually probably not even that far. It's It comes down to, again, consumer acceptance, which is kind of, again, the whole point we're trying to arrive at to learn with the survey, because it's a big, complicated thing to understand. And frankly, it's it's one thing to develop technology, but this is a very different sort of tech, which if you don't have that public acceptance, even the best technology in the world is never going to be deployed. Yes, I agree. That's uh, and and I like the questions to to this. And next question was, what do you prefer, a train or an autonomous driving car? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so good good questions like that. Well, that one was a neat question, I think, because and you're right because I think you know one of the things uh, I've been saying forever is at the end of the day, what's the difference between an autonomous vehicle, especially a level four vehicle, which is only able to drive on certain roads. What's the difference between that and a train? It's effectively a virtual train, let's face it, or indeed even an airplane. I mean, whether you've got a box on wheels or a tube with wings, it's effectively on a predetermined path. Uh, so it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's a different physical container. It's just that on, in a car, so you feel more uh, like the owner and you give it uh, the direction and you give it the speed and you, you, you're you more in the control. In a, in a train, you just sit in and you know I need to go to this town and this country or whatever and then you just are a passenger. But when in the car, you are more the driver and then this gives you more freedom and uh, therefore people like to drive and say, okay, I can now rex a bit and uh, drive something and nobody, <laughs> the car doesn't contradict you. So if you talk to your wife, then sometimes you will say, no, no, that's different. And you're, you're wrong, Mark, but the car doesn't <laughs> contradict you and just does what you do, what you ask her to do. And therefore people, many people love their cars and uh, I too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I love my cars too. And I've definitely had cars contradict me in the past. So I think you got very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, look, uh, Oscar, this has been a really awesome conversation. Um, I should say, I hope it goes without saying, uh, obviously, you know, to the extent that we're trying to help companies like yours and others besides to the extent that we can help at Hogan Co., please don't hesitate if there's any introductions we can make. And obviously, to anybody listening, if you're in this space and you are in need of the sort of tool qualification work that Oscar and his team do at Validas, please do reach out personally to me on LinkedIn or Twitter or otherwise, and more than happy to facilitate that introduction. So, um but yeah, Oscar, it's really great uh, chatting with you. Thanks so much. I know it's pretty late for you over there in Munich, but um, yes, what a wonderful yes. conversation. So I, I also liked it. And if uh, people want to know more about uh, tool qualification, then just uh, find our podcast on every podcast uh, platform. So would uh, love to talk to you more. And awesome. thanks very, very much. Thank you, Mark, for having me here and wish to see you soon in Munich. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Oscar. Have a good night. Talk to you yeah, soon. Goodbye. Good night. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that's a wrap for today. And indeed, this week. Coming up next week, Tuesday the 17th, we'll see a return to standard news-type episodes. But on Friday the 20th and Tuesday the 24th, we've got two another amazing guests in the pipeline. I'll share more with you about them on Tuesday's episode. Until then, have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe and stay home. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.